Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, we are going to look at chapter 4 this morning. We'll focus in on the, the first Uh, 17 verses. Now there's a whole lot of legal stuff going on here and we will get into that um, um, enough so that you can understand the flow. But there's a really important verse here that um, the English translations have really smoothed out. That uh, once again, as I've been telling you through the book of Jonah and now through the book of, of Ruth, the, the Hebrew often is written almost cartoonishly in order to make its point. And, um, and we have one of those uh, in, our, in our text this morning. If you notice um, in, in uh, verse 1 and 2, Boaz is, is there uh, looking for the, the, uh, the other family member that is first in line. And so he's waiting at the gate. Uh, and once again, we're told, by the way, that the, the one person he's looking for just happens to walk by, uh, as we've been hearing that kind of language throughout. Uh, in the English, there are different approaches to this about, hey, friend, come and sit with me, or, or something like that. Um, the, the issue is uh, that in the Hebrew, it doesn't say friend. Uh, it says, Maloney Poloni. And no, not because uh, the first family member in line was Italian. Um, it's, a nonsense, it's a nonsense phrase. Uh, something like uh, what Daniel said this morning uh, in our meeting. Uh, like the phrase, heebie-jeebies, right? Um, or if, if applied to a person or maybe a name, we might say something like, oh, well, old Joe Schmo over there. That's what's going on. This is a Joe Schmo. His name has not been included. And that is because the decision that he makes renders himself excluded from having his name listed in Matthew 1 as part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's not named. He is a Joe Schmo because his name is not important because he is not willing to consider the name of Elimelech important. So let that help shape your, your listening as we look here at, Roman, uh, at, Romans, at Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, surprise, surprise, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, happened to come by. So Boaz said, hey, Joe Schmo, turn aside here and sit down with me. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, hey, sit here with us. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. 
And he said, I will redeem it. But then Boaz said, oh, and by the way, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer thought twice and said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he withdrew, Uh, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to cut through the legalese of this beautiful passage that you have caused to be written down in order that we, your church, living so many generations later, might see your faithfulness And to be encouraged to live into the future that Christ has secured for us as you secured the line of Christ through Boaz and through Ruth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I've not always been the biggest fan of that hymn, Silent Night. Often I have thought about it through 
human terms and in terms of, well, there were a lot of animals there. You got a newborn baby there. You've got shepherds showing up, right? How is this a quiet or a silent night? But as I have reflected uh, on Scripture through the years and and the way that God uh, talks to us about responding to his promises and avoiding fear, as we saw in Isaiah 44 just moments ago, the calmness that is part of this night is is not that there's not noise. It's not that the animals aren't making noise. It's not that the, the shepherds aren't making noise. It's not that Jesus isn't crying. The calmness here is that the promises of God that, that go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God the Father came to them in his mercy, in his grace, and in his compassion and in his love, and said, I am going to send you a seed. And he is going to be a new kind of king, priest, and prophet. And he is going to do, Adam, what you failed to do. And in the process of this great victory he's going to win, he's going to be struck down within that process. However, he is going to deliver a head-crushing blow in the midst of his own uh, reception of being struck. This was a promise from the very beginning that God in his compassion would send us a Savior, would send us a King. And this Savior is, is given to us in the form of a seed. And what every generation was looking for after this promise And especially once you get into Israel as a nation, Israel as a people group, every Israelite woman, when she had a baby, the question that would be in her heart, is this the one? Is this the seed? Is this the one that God has promised that will come and will save us? As you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of difficulty. The waiting on this seed is not a smooth, easygoing, relaxed waiting. Because they are a sinful people who are waiting within a fallen world. And the saving that they need is a saving from sin. Not just their own personal, moral Um, collapses, but the very fact that nature itself has been corrupted by sin and that the good world that God created to be a vessel and conduit of his goodness has now been cursed. And even those who are waiting for the Lord have to wait as those who endure the ongoing presence of sin. And it is a hard waiting. It is a difficult waiting. Without realizing it, so much of the present that you and I live in, so much of the present that the last generation lived in, so much of the present 
that the generation of Boaz lived in and the generation of Abraham and going back, every generation has, to, has had to live in a present existence in which they are waiting upon the Lord to do something. The very nature of life is a forward-living life. That's the nature of it. That we, we can't escape it. It's designed into the system that we are looking for something to come. We are living into the future. But we do that as those who have experienced a past. A past that has brought good experiences. A past that has brought bad experiences. And some of us have more good than bad and others have way more bad than good. And the reality is this. As we are called to live into a future, we do so as those who have to wrestle with the past. This time of year is one of those times that really can cause us as a people to live in the past. So many of the Christmas songs that Daniel is aggravated by on the radio right now speak of Christmas as this past event where it is looked upon with nostalgia. And the reality is it was never as good as we remember, right? I think there's a whole movie based on that premise. It was never as good as, as we thought it was. But the danger of living in nostalgia is that it totally affects your present and how you look to the future. The other problem with this time of year is that many of us are suffering loss. And it is in the holiday season that those losses come back to someone and, and impress themselves upon the heart so heavily. Those who have lost husbands, those who have lost wives, those who have lost children, those who have lost parents, right? It is in this season, as you are reflecting on Christmas's past, that you can have that weight of the loss come back to you in such a more real way, such a heavy way. And that, too, shapes the way that not only you experience the present, but it, ex it, it shapes the way you look to the future. Nostalgia tells you to try to recapture something from the past, something that never really existed. And so you end up spinning your wheels trying to capture something that was never there to begin with. And, and, and if you are living uh, with loss, you, you look into the future most frequently with fear. Fear can lead to a doomsdayism. Where fear of the future, it leads to a present existence in which the only thing that we can see shaping our everyday existence is the stuff that's right in front of us. And if you are suffering 
the remembrance of loss. It is pain. It is heartache. The message of Christianity is that we do not have to live with regards to the past with nostalgia or with fear. The message of Advent is a message of hope. And the very nature of what hope is, is that the present situation is not the only thing that exists. What hope reminds us of is that the people who are involved in your life are not the only actors who are forming and shaping what you experience. To put it another way, as what we have been looking at in the book of Ruth, is that Advent provides us an opportunity to reflect on the past faithfulness and activity of God where his His uh, activity is a hidden activity, where his actions are hidden actions. It is not a book like the book of Exodus, where God is invading creation and all this supernatural stuff is, is happening and there's a bunch of frogs, right? What God is doing in, in the book of Ruth is revealing to us what normal existence is like for everyone in this world. There is someone who is acting behind the scenes to to move things according to his eternal purposes and plans. What we have seen in the book of Ruth is that God does this in a hidden way, but he also does this in an embodied way, where where God's faithful love, where his covenant promising and his covenant keeping take place through the embodied actions of everyday individuals. The future is not only shaped by our past. And the future is certainly not limited to our present. That is Ruth's problem. I'm sorry, Naomi's problem. She has lost a husband. She has lost two sons. She has lost her inheritance in the promised land. She feels empty. She is stating that God has done these things to her, and so now, instead of being named Naomi, which means pleasant one, her name should be changed to Mara, which means bitterness. She is empty, and she needs to be filled. She has lost um, the, the, the family name of her husband, Elimelech, and she has lost the inheritance of his allotment of the of the apportioned land to his tribe. You could say very easily she is without hope. But that is only if she defines her present and her future by the experiences that she has had up to that point. 
And the whole book of Ruth is helping us to see that God is not limited to those things. Now what we also have been seeing in the book of Ruth is Naomi is not the only one who needs this. Ruth needs this as she has lost a husband and as she has given up her own country to come as a foreigner into a land that she has no inherent rights to, into a society that is not going to help her. In fact, she is going to be looked down upon because she is from Moab. But what we have also talked about here in Ruth is that these things that are going on in Naomi, that are going on in Ruth, are indicative of what is going on in the nation of Israel. This is happening at a time when there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And the result, as you read the book of Judges, is that there was this constant pattern of them chasing after false gods, being judged by Yahweh, going through a period of suffering and hardship, and then God sending a, a judge who would come in and help them break the pattern and bring them back to the enjoyment of the covenant, only for them to once again give that up and go through the cycle again, and cycle again, cycle again, cycle again, cycle again, seven times. The events of Ruth are happening during that time. Israel is in need, not of a husband, but a king. The very promised king that God made in Genesis 3, that we are reminded of in Genesis 49 that was read this morning, that that king would come from the tribe of Judah. That same promise of a king that we read in Micah chapter 5 in which that coming king who is going to come from Judah will come through the little town of Bethlehem and specifically the Ephrathah region of Bethlehem. Where this coming king is going to be none other from Daniel than the Ancient of Days the everlasting one, one who will come in the appearance of humility and yet who will truly be the eternal God who has come in order to win his kingdom and rule with a dominion that is everlasting and universal. In Ruth chapter 4, all of these things come together in two gifts that God gives us, his people. And that first gift that that we receive, as we see here in the book of Ruth, is the gift of a husband. A gift in which there is a bride who is broken, who has no inherent worth, who has nothing to bring to a marriage, who has no inherent value, who is from Moab, which if you know the history of Moab, oh, Right? Icky. Heebie-jeebies. And yet, what we see here is that God, through the compassion and through the embodied love of a man named Boaz, God provides a husband. 
Now, the way that it works out here is you've got a couple of legal issues, and we're not going to spend much time on this, but there are two legal issues going on. The first legal issue has to do with the land itself. If you recall, after the exodus and as, as God brought his people into the promised land, each tribe was allotted a certain portion of land. That land was their inheritance. And they, uh, as, a, as family groups, they, they had uh, that land and God told them. Not they didn't possess the land, they lived as his tenants on that land. That was his land that he was giving to them in order for them to work it for them to be his servants and to worship him and serve him. And, and that inheritance, as it was given to the family groups, was supposed to be ongoing. And if someone had hardship and they had to sell that, well, in the year of Jubilee, they, the family would get it back. But in the meantime, if someone had come into hard times and they had to either sell or, or rent out the land in order to provide money and sustenance for themselves, what could happen is if there was a wealthier family member, they could come in and they could pay the debt on that land and give it back to the family that had had, had to rent it off. The second issue we have here is that in these times, if uh, there was a widow who had lost her husband. There was provision in the law for what we call leveret marriage, where there was the, the, it was supposed to be the brother or the next closest kin would um, either marry um, or would at least help provide a seed so that the name of her, of, of her uh, late husband would not be lost to time. These are two things that are huge in the nation of Israel, land and name, and the two go together. To lose land would be tantamount to losing one's connection to the name because it was the name that guaranteed the, the inheritance of the land. You see how that works together? Only people who were within Elimelech's family could uh, were supposed to have his land. Elimelech has died. His two sons have died. And so what's going to happen to that land? These men have died. What's going to happen to their name? See what's going on here? Boaz, in his compassion and in his kindness, has made himself available to God and to Ruth and to Naomi, that he is willing to deal, to take care of both problems, even though it is not his responsibility, and though he will not get anything out of it. And so what, what, we, what has happened here is he goes to the gate in order to wait for Joe Schmo to, to, to walk by, and, and as it just so happens, right, the hidden providence of God, the one person he needs to talk to happens to come by at the moment that he's waiting for him. And so then there happens to be ten elders. Well, let's call the elders over as well. And so the elders there, and they go through the business, and, and Boaz is pretty, is pretty shrewd here. This is, this is definitely gentle as a dove, wise as a serpent. He's, he, he puts the land issue up front. 
hey, Naomi needs to do something with this land because she's destitute. And if you don't want this to go to someone outside of our family, you are first in line to get it. And it says here in the text, buy, but that's not really what is going on here in the Hebrew. It's more claim. He can claim it because it is his right to claim it as what we call the kinsman redeemer or the goel. So he has the right to claim it. Boaz is saying, you need to claim it so that our family's inheritance doesn't go outside of our family. And the guy's like, Joe Schmo's like, well, yeah, let's do it. Now, here's what Boaz really wanted. He really wanted Ruth as a wife. But Ruth was going to be attached to the land. And so what he does now is he says, oh, and by the way, if you do claim the land, you also will be responsible for Ruth. And you will be responsible for providing her a seed. Which, by the way, what would happen is if Ruth had a son, then that land that he just claimed, guess who it now would belong to? To the son. <laughs> so Boaz at first presents it as, hey, here's an opportunity for you to help our family, and it'll help you out. You get some more land, and you can pay workers to do the harvest, right? Um, oh, but if you do that, you're only going to have it for a time because you're also supposed to help provide the very person who will take it over from you. And the guy's at first, he's like, yeah, I'll claim it. Oh, no, no, no thanks. He's not interested at that point. Now, the reality here is what he says no to is not a piece of land. And what he says no to is not a bride. What he says no to is being part of the hidden providence of God in securing the safety of of the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 and playing a role in being part of the lineage of King David and by extension, Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Something that seems so everyday mundane, a land deal. Cut him out of having his name recorded in Scripture, right? Not just figuratively, they literally cut it out and they call him Maloney Poloney, which is not a bunch of baloney. It's serious. He, his name is cut out of history. The hidden providence of God is securing the future of his people through the sacrificial and humble actions of a righteous man who not only is trying to uphold the letter of the law, but goes beyond the letter to the spirit of the law to embody the compassion and grace of God in providing a husband for Ruth. Secondly, he provides a child. He provides a baby. And it is the baby that secures the inheritance for Naomi. 
She also is empty and she needs to be filled. She is without hope and and she needs to have that hope restored. She is someone who is destitute in and of herself and what she needs is provision and protection. And what God does is he provides her through Boaz and Ruth. He provides her a baby. And if you notice here in, in the, the interaction between the neighborhood, the neighborhood gals and Naomi, right? They're, they've gotten together and they're chit-chatting and they're excited about this new baby, right? Have you seen my grandson, right? They pulled out the picture. Well, it's really a sketch, but she pulls it out. She's bragging on him, right? How do the ladies respond? Oh, well, that's, such a, that's so amazing that you have a grandson. Oh, that's so cool that you have such an attractive you know, young baby. What do they, what do they, how do they respond? Praise Yahweh that you have not been left without a redeemer. So often in, here in the book of Ruth, it is Boaz that is often identified as the kinsman redeemer. Go, and Boaz is not the kinsman redeemer. He is second in line. When the kinsman redeemer gives up his privilege, Boaz then enacts the privilege but who is it that is specifically identified as the redeemer it is the baby who is born to ruth and boaz and he is the redeemer because he is the father of jesse who is the father of david who ultimately is the father of david's greater son and in god's covenantal faithfulness he has secured the promised seed. And he has, he has secured that seed so many times. Why is it that in, in, in Egypt, the, 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 the um, Pharaoh decided to kill the children? And yet a faithful mother and a faithful uh, midwife hid a child in order to protect the child, not knowing what they were protecting was the seed. And how many times do we see time after time after time where there is a problem with lineage? Judah and Tamar that we mentioned last week that's mentioned in the text, who Tamar and Judah, who are within the lineage of Jesus Christ, if Tamar had not taken the action she had taken, she would not have had that seed. And yet God secured that seed. And he has been securing it over and over and over until even in Bethlehem, so many generations after this account, when the promised seed has has come into existence in Bethlehem, Ephratah, what does Herod do? He sends out an edict, kill the children. And how is the seed protected? How is the seed secured? Well, they go to Egypt. How interesting. That's for another time. But God has been faithfully securing his seed in the face of our fallenness, in the face of our moral failures, in the face of the, the fear in which we so often live that leads to moral failures and leads us to try to shape our own future and, and to try to get God to do what we want. 
And yet God has been faithfully behind the scenes in so many hidden ways securing his promise in order to provide us what we needed as he has given the church a bride who has no inherent worth within herself has given this bride a husband. A husband who is the embodiment of righteousness, truth, goodness, and beauty and who imputes his righteousness, truth, goodness, and beauty to his bride so that the white dress that she wears on her wedding day is a white dress that has been gifted to her, not one that she has earned. And how God, in providing this husband, did so by first providing a baby where God himself was born into the manger, taking on flesh, and being the embodiment of God's faithfulness, God's secured promises, God's compassion, his love, his generosity. And Jesus, in giving up the glory of heaven for a time, in order to dwell with the humble and the lowly, to help the humble and the lowly be raised up out of, this, uh, out of the humility and death of sin, and to be exalted to the right hand of the Father into an inheritance that has been secured, not a piece of land uh, over in Palestine, but the very new heavens and the new earth that we will enter into the fullness of when our Savior comes back. And so, beloved, what Advent is doing right now for us is it provides us this opportunity to reflect upon the past as it is shaping the, the present. But the past that we are reflecting upon is not the harm and the hurt or the nostalgia of, of, our, of, of, of the, the events of our lives. It is on the faithfulness of God and what he has done and even providing us these little pictures along the way where there was a husband and a baby and it provides us an opportunity then to escape the fear that is so natural to us so that as we live into the future, we don't live into the future in a position of bitterness like Naomi at the beginning, but we live into the future with the hope and celebration of Naomi at the end, that Yahweh is faithful and he has revealed his faithfulness in a husband and in a baby. And beloved, what that means for you and for me is if you are united to Christ, you now don't only share in the inheritance that Christ has won, but you also share in the privilege of being the embodied love and generosity and grace to a lost world who is living without hope. And you and I get to enter into the generosity of our Savior and to take the things that God has blessed us with and use them to bless others, not because we're going to get something out of it, like the first Goel, but because we are willing to give into it 
as those who have received all the blessings of the heavenly places in the Noel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace and the gift of your Son, the gift of a husband for your church, and the gift of securing all of these things for us to free us, not only from judgment, Lord, but to free us from the fear of doomsdayism here within this world. And to help us, Lord, to live in the freedom that Christ has achieved and that Christ has gifted, so that we do not have to be trapped in nostalgia or trapped in fear, but instead in the freedom of the exalted Christ and in the hope that the present isn't all that there is and that there is a secret actor behind the scenes that is, that is moving everything and constraining everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Help us to walk in trust and to rest in peace, so that indeed, Heavenly Father, we might sleep in heavenly peace, even as chaos rages around us. Father, fill us with this hope and trust, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.